0: you don't really have that risk of 100% of your investors stopping and believing you, right? If you had one or two mental hospital firms, maybe they got up on the wrong side of the bed one day or they decided they didn't like you, right? Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy for one or two people to change their mind over something that is maybe not based on merit.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Digital Health Entrepreneurship with Lawrence Gerard On today's episode, we wanna talk about risk because like most of you know, Lawrence and his company at Fruit Street, they have hundreds of physician investors. And there's some people that would say that is more than maybe having one or two venture capital firms. So, so today we want to talk about which is more risky, is one more risky? Is it have a couple venture capital firms invested in your company or to have hundreds of smaller investors? Lawrence, what do you think about this?
0: It's more risky to have a small number of venture
1: capital firms by a long shot. And why is that? Give us a little bit of context.
0: Well, the problem with having one or two venture capital firms as an investor is that if you don't hit their financial goals, they can get impatient very quickly because they have 10 or 20 other portfolio companies, and they need to pretty quickly decide which companies are not going to succeed. So they can put additional capital into the one or two that are going to be successful. And when you have your existing venture capital firms decide that they do not want to invest and second-time is due, it's kind of like a red flag for new venture capital firms that are considering investing because if they see that you're, you know, previous venture capital firm invested, you know, $5 million, and I ask, well, why are they not willing to invest another $1 or $2 million? So, not only does it cause a problem because your previous firm doesn't want to invest, but it also sends a bad signal to new venture capital firms. So, that's one of the problems, among many others. Uh, but there's also benefits to having hundreds of individual traditional investors, for example, because... The probability that you're going to have, you know, 300 investors that invest in your company stop believing in what you're doing is pretty close to zero if you're doing a half decent job, um, and so you have 300 people that are willing to invest the second, third, and fourth time, and so um, you don't really have that risk of 100 percent of your investors stopping and believing you, right? If you have one or two venture capital firms. Maybe they got up on the wrong side of the bed one day or they decided they didn't like you, right? Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy for one or two people to change their mind over something that is maybe not based on merit. But the probability that 300 people are going to change their mind in a way that's not based on merit is very low. Hmm.
2: Is there other problems related to venture capital firms pushing the management team to put people on advisory boards, for instance, like I know Frist Street has an amazing medical advisory board, but you don't have VC firms you know, nagging and hassling you to put members on that board, for instance. Is that another thing that, that you think about uh, in terms of you know, venture capital firm possibilities?
0: Well, venture capital firms often have recruiting teams and they will try to place members of the management team into the company, which can sometimes be useful And I don't think that that's necessarily, necessarily the problem. I mean, that can be helpful. I just think that the problem in this discussion is about just having a diversity of sources of capital and having investors that are patient and realize how long it takes to do things in healthcare. I think in healthcare in particular, it's a very bad industry to have a venture capital for an investor because in healthcare, I would say generally speaking, you know, Let's say you're in the telemedicine field, for example. I mean, if you are increasing your profit margin too much, that probably means you're either paying the doctor too little or charging the patients too much. And in the eyes of the venture capital, from I mean, that might be a good thing. Um, but in the eyes of how do we help society, it's a very bad thing. So I think it's important to have investors that um, are very patient, that are willing to let the entrepreneur have some amount of control, because I think there's data that proves that founder-led companies are more successful than, say, so when a venture capital firm comes and inspires the founder of the company. Uh, but it's also important to have investors that want to have a social impact when you're dealing with a healthcare business. I think that many of our position investors have invested more money for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, the revenue of our company has increased every year since it started six years ago, but I'm not sure that that's the reason why they have invested more money. For example... We achieved something called full recognition with the CDC for our diabetes prevention program, which kind of proved that our clinical outcomes were uh, very good. Or, you know, they've seen that, okay, now society really needs a telemedicine service. Um, And so from a public service standpoint, they decided that this is the right thing to do in terms of putting more capital into the business. I mean, I was watching CNN last night and there was this interview with a woman who had... Mortgage that on her house for six hundred thousand dollars to buy face masks for um, you know doctors and nurses that didn't have enough at their hospital, and I don't think it's identical. I mean, what that woman is doing is going above and beyond, but in some ways it is identical. Like there are some physicians that have invested a lot of money and to first treat like up to a million dollars. And I'm not sure that the reason why they're doing it. it is just to kind of make like a lot of money. I think they truly want to help us have an impact from like a public service standpoint. Um, and so it's like a different type of investing. It's almost like they, for some of them, it's like a heroic level of investing, or they're just doing it because they want to see the healthcare system fix. And that's just not a mindset that venture capital firms have. They're they are more quick to say no in the best way in the world, and they're to say yes. Um,
2: so actually, this is a different mindset. Lawrence, where do you think you are on the risk scale? Like, if we could be playful and say, like, at one end of the scale is risk adverse, and the other end of the scale is risk gung-ho. Like, to me, it's going to be real, you kind of seem like the guy who's, like, running towards risk, and you're awesome with it, you understand it. Like, what, what do you say to people who are risk-adverse, you know, like just naturally, like at the opposite end of the spectrum of you?
0: Well, I think sometimes people take the easy way out and they say, oh, you know, every other big company is just, you know, a risk. That's not necessarily true. I mean, you can use the scientific method and really dive deep into what's going on with the business to determine if it's risky or not. I mean, every private company on the planet is not, you know, automatically risky, Right. And the same way that every public company on the planet is not automatically a good investment, so I think sometimes people jump to conclusions too quickly without examining facts. People are busy, so that's fine. Um, But um, I feel like what I'm doing is really not that risky. I mean, telemedicine is probably one of the only industries that is experiencing rapid growth right now, and maybe I just got lucky by selecting the right industry, but. I mean, I wouldn't want to be working for airline right now, you know, so so I feel like um, in some ways I got lucky that way, but um, I don't think working on a private telemedicine company is risky at this point. It's probably one of the safest businesses to be working on at the moment, given the state of the world.
2: This question might be a bit personal, but a bit intense, but you know, we talked a bit about Venture capital firms wanting to shut down startups because, for whatever reason. And then the potential that some investors might dislike the, the CEO's vision or how the product's going. You know, like, um, have you ever had some investors that just want to revolt uh, and uh, take over the company from you? Like, how do you deal with that if that's not too
1: personal? Yeah,
0: I, mean, I had that in the original 1.0 Food Street, which uh, you know was a company that we raised about $1 million for and it had about 60 investors. And I would say that um, you know 80 to 90 percent of them were supportive, but unfortunately, you know, one or two of them that were large investors were not supportive, and um, you know they decided that they knew best and uh, just tried to kind of fire me as CEO, take over the company. And it's unclear if they actually successfully did that because it was all this confusion about who owned what shares, and then was a disagreement. Um, so ultimately I just decided that you know they were wasting my time and I just decided to start a new company which is Fruit Street and offer the old investors free shares care the new company to be ethical and make sure they got a return on investment. And so it is true that sometimes individual investors, I mean this person was a physician that um, you know wasn't as professional, let's say as a venture capitalist is. I mean, I think venture capitalists are very professional people in general. I mean, you always hear these core stories about sexual harassment and stuff, but I would say the majority of them, most of the time, act very professional. They're not going to like threaten you on a personal basis. It's just very matter-of-fact in terms of business. So it's certainly one downside to having hundreds of individual investors. is that sometimes they have a bit of an ego, you know, and they think that they know everything. Um, I, I would say 99% of the time, that's not the case, but I think that's why in a crowdfunding model, it is important for these companies to have class F voting structures, which are basically structures that allow the founders to have full voting control. Sometimes that's one person and sometimes that's two or three people. But I think that um, that allows the management team to stay exclusively focused on the business, right? I mean, I have full voting control of Fruit Street. Let's imagine for a second that I did not have full voting control of Fruit Street I would have to play a lot more politician with my time because I'd constantly be worried about, you know, if there's some shareholder talking to some other shareholder that's trying to, you know, get me fired, right? I mean, and so I still keep my investors updated, but I don't have to play politicians. And I think politics waste a lot of time in startups where everybody gets, I hear these stories about like the whole Madison team getting really scared at every quarterly board meeting because they think that they're, fabulous, they're going to fire everybody. But we don't really have that industry. So it's a culture where there is a phrase that a sports psychologist taught me. I'm going to say his name, Dan Abrams. He is the uh, sports psychologist for some English Premier League teams, soccer teams in Europe, and uh, in the United team for them actually. And uh, he has this term called psychological safety. And so, you know, having the management team or the founders to have full cool voting control of the company is a way to provide them with psychological safety, which in a way motivates them to actually work harder because they're not constantly worried about getting fired. And it builds a little bit of trust between the investors and the management team.
1: And that's interesting. I, I think that's a really interesting point because all of this leads to kind of breaking down some misconceptions that people have of this is the way to start and build a company. You get an idea, you go to venture capital firms, you wait, like, and I think what you're getting at is there's different ways to to company like, and it really depends on what you're wanting to do. Your company, you want it to be more of a profit and more of a social good company. And so it makes sense to have more stakeholders, that are in that. But then you've also organized it in a way so that you still have voting control so that you CEO and not a politician in your own organization. Well, yeah. Go ahead. I was going
0: to say that, um, yeah, I was going to say that I think that, um, that issue of voting control is super interesting because, um, I mean, why would anybody make an investment of like 25 or $50,000 into a company and then want to make all of the decisions? I mean, do they really have time to make all the decisions? I like can imagine for like a busy emergency room doctor. I mean, the reason why you're giving this 25 or $50,000 to you know, an entrepreneur is because you believe in the entrepreneur, you believe in their mission and you don't have time to build a business yourself and you don't necessarily have the passion that this entrepreneur has. And so why would you want to you know, control the company? So I think it's pretty funny sometimes when someone wants to invest like 25,000 out of $5 million that the company is raising. And they think that it's a problem if they don't have the voting control. I mean, it's of course important for them to have information, right, to get updates on how the company's doing and that kind of thing. But um, for me, if you're going to invest in an entrepreneur, just give them the voting control, at least at the angel investor level. I mean, you know, if you got to the level where, like, you're having like, an yeah, IPO or you're raising like a $100 million funding round, I mean, that's kind of institutional level of investing where those institutions might have other stakeholders that require them to have some level of input. But, the angel investor level, I just think it's silly for investors to have voting control over like brand new businesses.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. Um, And I would say that people that are wanting to invest that small amount of money in comparison, like the example you said, 25,000 out of 5 million. And if they're expecting full voting control, there's probably a, it seems like there's a gap in understanding of the role of an investor in So it seems like they probably don't fully understand what their money should be doing in different things. But I love it that you've given your investors a voice as advisors and, and you, you know, they have a voice, even though, yes, you have the say at the end of the day, like you've said on other episodes, at the end of the day, you're the CEO and you're the leader of this ship. Any last words towards um, people that might be wondering like, okay, that's still, you know, should I try and get more smaller investors or should I go after a venture capital firm I know it's not as simple of a decision as that, but before we go, like any last words to people (laughs) that might be weighing those two options?
0: Well, think about this scenario. Let's say the company needs more funding to grow, and it's very critical that the company gets more funding. If you have a venture capital firm, you have to convince one person to say yes or no. Now, let's imagine that you have 500 positions that have invested into your company, and these are all people that make, you know, above $200,000. They're accredited investors. Many of them might have one or two million dollars. Of savings and assets. And so, you know, let's imagine that scenario for a second. Let's say out of the 500, you could convince um, 250 to invest another $100,000. That's $25 million, right? And you don't even have to convince 100% of your shareholder base. And it's something where these people can make a relatively quick decision because. They're not just like some institutional venture capital firm. And I think that as you build trust with your individual investors, they believe in the vision more and more because you tell them what you're going to do over the next 12 months. So whatever whatever it is, right, you're going to hit a revenue goal. You're going to build a certain product or get a certain time stack. So we told everybody we were going to get a certain time most likely from a big customer for covid MD, And we did so when we told them what we were going to do, and we did it, it builds credibility to the point where they can easily make a decision to invest more capital. So I think that if you can build up a shareholder base of like a few hundred people and then build trust with them so that when you go back to them, 50 or 100 or 200 of them instantly say, I have to giving you more money, that, that's how you do it. The problem is, I know somebody else that you know, has dozens of investors but he didn't do a good job at communicating. He didn't update them every day like I do through a software we use called Basecamp. He didn't. He hasn't even been updating them once a quarter. So when shareholders don't hear from the CEO more than once every four months, and they have to email the CEO to get updates, you're not building any trust because you're not communicating. So it does require a very good uh, communicator to have hundreds of investors. Otherwise, it could go south very quickly. So I would say that. Um, if you're going to have hundreds of investors, make sure you really treat them, as not just investors, but advisors, and you really get their input on the business so they feel like you really want their opinions and input and you value what they're saying.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice, Lawrence. Thanks so much for shedding some light on this conversation of risk and investors. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Digital Health Entrepreneurship with Lawrence Gerrard. If you haven't already, take a look at some of our other episodes and leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. We will see you tomorrow on Digital Health Entrepreneurship.